Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this, this week's episode is special. I'm about as hype as I have been to talk to a guest in quite some time, because this week, our guest is the speaker of the Maine House of Representatives, having just been elected at 28 years old, which is absolutely incredible. Ryan Fecto, welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, let's get your story. So, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Biddeford, Maine, so uh, born and raised there and uh, still live here, and it's the community I represent in the legislature. Nice. And what did what role did the Franco-American, French-Canadian identity have kind of in your life when you were growing up? Uh, significant. My, my meme, Pepe, and my dad moved from uh, Packington, Quebec in 1964 wow. to work in the textile mills in downtown Biddeford. So my dad my mame, my pepe, my aunt all worked uh, in the mills at one point in their lives. My dad worked there pretty much until they uh, shuttered and, and the operation was moved uh, south. The identity of the Franco identity for me is, is, is pretty intimate. No, that's awesome. Now, did they, were you around French? Did they speak French in the house? Did you... Yeah, my mame, my, my pepe, my dad speak French, but I uh, unfortunately... Uh, have not picked it up. So I understand quite a bit, especially when my meme is speaking about, about food. Um, <laughs> but, but otherwise, I, I don't speak French. Yeah, you're seem to be the same generation then as me and my sis, kind of the same deal. We grew up, my parents grew up speaking in the house, but never taught me and my sister. So now did you did you ever visit? Like Quebec when you were growing up to see like yeah, cousins yes. and stuff up there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So my, my meme's brother lives in the house that she grew up in um, awesome you know so it's uh he's still there and uh we would go up in, in the summer to to go visit uh to go visit him up in packington so it's a pretty uh lengthy drive it's you know north of fort kent here in maine so oh wow uh you know straight up straight up to the top of maine and then <laughs> in new brunswick for a little bit and then back into quebec so that's yeah. a haul for yeah, sure. it's a haul. It's a haul. When you're when you're in the back seat with your little sister, who's three years younger than you, for eight hour <laughs> drive, um, yeah, you can imagine that my uh, my dad had his hands full. <laughs> yeah, I have I have to confess, being from New Hampshire, we I didn't really appreciate how big Maine was until you know Mike and I we were heading up to Orono for the Rassemblement, and we're talking about it. We're like because we had interviewed somebody for Fort Kent. We're like, how, how much further can it be to Fort Kent? And then it's like, <laughs> it's a lot further to Fort Kent is the yes, answer. Yes, yes, uh, Wow, yes. that's awesome. Yeah, so a, a lot of people consider Bangor and Orono to be Northern Maine, but it really is in reality Central Maine. <laughs> yes, there's still a ways to go. Absolutely. Do you stay in contact with cousins and stuff? Um, well, I have some, fo- some, we have some family that have moved here to, into Southern Maine, but gotcha. um, certainly uh, my meme is the one who does most of the communication with, uh, with our, with our family in Quebec, uh, mostly because they speak primarily French and sure. don't speak much English. My meme doesn't speak very much, uh, very much English at all, even though she's been here since 1964. No, I think that's awesome that you still have that personal connection back to Quebec. That's very, very, very neat. Okay. So maybe you could tell me a little bit of kind of what your life was like growing up in Biddeford. Cause I, I read a couple of different places that it doesn't seem like life was always rainbows and unicorns for yourself. 
No, no. I mean, uh, my, like I said, my parents had divorced when we were fairly young. So, you know, my mother, had, my mom had full custody of us. And so um, we were with her on, during the weekdays and we'd go to my dad's on the weekends. So we lived in low-income housing. Uh, my mom uh, didn't finish high school. She dropped out after ninth grade. So um, she worked in the healthcare field, but obviously not with in a position that would be, you know, where you'd make the most money because she didn't have any credentials in order sure. to, to work in those fields. So she was, you know, she's a low wage healthcare worker, still is. Yeah, we lived in low income housing, you know, had an unreliable car. You know, I, I always remember just thinking, you know, anything that could go wrong financially always seemed to, you know, when sure. you're at that, when you're at the edge of the cliff like that, it seems like the things that could go wrong do go wrong. And uh, it was, it was definitely challenging through basically, um, you know, almost through eighth grade, I would say. And then my mom met my stepdad and, and that certainly uh, helped move, move us out of, uh, out of the situation we were in and, uh, you know, had a pretty good middle-class family living from, from that point forward. So, but, um, you know, it was, it was definitely challenging. I, I, I remember distinctly uh, one day my, my mom getting a call from her friend, letting us know that the JJ Nissen plant near, nearby here in Biddeford was, uh, you know, giving away excess food that the other had maybe bad, you know, expiration dates, but not necessarily the food was, was bad or uh, they just had excess. Sure. And so we went and, you know, grabbed crates and, you know, picked up a bunch of food. And I remember like opening the refrigerator and we had like all of this food suddenly inside, inside the fridge, you know, a family that was living on, uh, off of food stamps. Right. And I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, we have like all of this, we have all this food now. Like we are, <laughs> we're set. Uh, meanwhile, of course, the food that was in the refrigerator were the like the Hostess fruit pies, you know, with like the gelatin, <laughs> yeah, like absolutely. lemon and cherry and yes. apple. Um, you know, you look at the nutritional ingredients <laughs> on, on those things. It's like saturated fat, sugar, you know. So, um, you know, that that's the that's the reality for a lot of a lot of families and a lot of kids in in here in Maine and across the country. You know, uh, when we talk about food insecurity. We talk about you know having a lack of access to food, but we what we also uh, probably don't talk about enough is an, an access uh, lack of access to nutritional food. It's not it's not one thing to just give people food. <laughs> you know we need we need young people to be able to have access to nutritional food because it obviously powers their minds and their bodies. So food insecurity is obviously something you have kind of made one of your main issues your entire time you've been in the legislature, and it is pretty awesome that you have that personal connection to that that you can kind of pull on when it comes time because a lot of for a lot of us you know it's just something we read about we hear about other people but you lived it that makes it all the difference your family you talked about uh, came down to work in the mills of Biddeford and to me the timeline is kind of interesting because you would think 1960s he was kind of late to have um, groups coming down from Quebec in order to to move into town to work in the mills how how long did it did the mill survive in Biddeford yeah, that, that, they were, uh, my family, I guess, would be a late arrival because obviously uh, there had been plenty of folks from Quebec who had moved to Biddeford pr- prior to 1964. Um, and we didn't have very many family members here already. So, um, I, you know, I don't exactly understand the, the timeline as to what prompted <laughs> the decision. Sure. Uh, but it's definitely a question I should ask my, my dad and my meme. Biddeford Mills ex- were built in the 1800s and obviously attracted numerous immigrants from across the the world. We actually had a fairly large Albanian population in Biddeford oh, wow. um, until the Spanish flu. Um, they sure. were they were dramatically impacted by the Spanish flu 
and pretty much wiped out any Albanians that were here. And there's actually a cemetery here in Biddeford uh, where you, you go through and you distinctly, you, you immediately see the plot where the Albanians were buried because uh, the headstones are in a different direction. They're, they're facing Mecca. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's pretty incredible. And to think, you know, if Spanish flu hadn't, hadn't occurred and, and uh, had impacted their community so significantly, you know, Biddeford would not only be a Franco community, but it would be an Albanian community as well. You'd have Muslims and Franco Catholics in the same, wow. in the same community. So, uh, you know, it's, I always think about how dramatic different Biddeford could sure. be if, if the Albanians were, were, were not killed by Spanish flu. So anyway, I mean, there have been Francos here in Biddeford for many, many years, primarily because of the textile mills, which, um, you know, still exists in downtown Biddeford. I mean, it's probably the biggest landmark in our, in our city. Uh, they've been converted into apartments. There's over a hundred businesses now in, in the mills. Um, and the, you know, it's the, the, the bones of these buildings, the skeleton of these buildings are really solid and uh, it's remarkable to see um, it's just sort of the transformation and how the mills, which were, you know, the largest economic driver of our town for sure. decades is still the largest economic driver of our town uh, to, to come just in a very different way. Yeah. It's awesome to see how, I mean, obviously a lot of these former French Canadian heavy towns, obviously I live in one in Manchester have all had to have that same type of, you know, what do we do now experience when the mills yeah. start moving out, we get all these buildings, what do we do with them? Different towns have been um, buried drastically as far as how successful they've been in repurposing them. So it's yes. very awesome whenever to see that that is economically successful in different places. Now, actually, speaking of which, I saw you were on the Biddeford Mills Museum board at one point. What is, I'm, we've talked a bunch about Biddeford. Uh, we yeah. talked to Tanya Chevenel. We talked to the mayor of Biddeford. I don't know about the Biddeford Mills Museum. So what is this? Oh, this is great. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, there's, a, there's some Francos on the board as well that I'm sure would probably love to come on the show at some point. But uh, the owner of the mill, Doug Sanford, he, he purchased the mill complex, the majority of the buildings, uh, just after they closed. Everyone thought he was crazy, right? Because <laughs> sure. know, why would you want to buy this big, this big footprint of empty buildings? And right. of course, now we know uh, he, was, he was pretty smart in doing so. But uh, the great thing about Doug is he has um, allowed uh, spaces inside the mill to remain in their, in their uh, you know, pre-existing format so that, there, that there's a sense of you know, what the mills were before, you know, the renovation that's occurred. And so uh, the Biddeford Mills Museum has um, done a great job of curating, you know, artifacts from, from the mills. You know, we have, um, you know, amazing letters. I mean, it was incredible. When the mills closed, uh, we kind of got in a, a group of students along with a teacher and we had like free reign over the building. Like, <laughs> like search through cabinets and it, you'd be amazed to see just how many things were just like left there for so long. I mean, we were finding letters that were written from one mill manager to a, another mill manager down in the South um, to uh, in, in the early 1900s. I mean, oh, wow. like postmarks still there, the envelope. <laughs> That's you know, awesome. Uh, we found the ledgers um, for the mills. I mean, really significant uh, artifacts. And so uh, all that has been curated there. You know, we have all, all those things. And then we have a, uh, in the, there's an event space in the mills um, that, that Doug has allowed us to uh, put, put um, you know, some historical information and some, some displays. So those exist as well. And then there's, and, and then they do tours. That's um, so, awesome. You know, folks from the public can come in and, and get a sense of, you know, what the building was. And uh, we have a couple of former mill workers who tell their own. Oh, really? That's stories, cool. Which is fun. 
Um, and, and the really cool thing that, that, that tops it all off is the mills were not built alongside the river, the Saco River. They were built in the river. So uh, the, the river would, would uh, obviously uh, come, come down into these underground tunnels. And there was a mill that, uh, that sat on its side and it would spin and the conveyor belts ran throughout downtown Biddeford. So there are actually tunnels that would dwarf you and me. Um, they're really large tunnels. And these are where the, the belts that powered the machinery um, ran and it was all water powered. Uh, so before electricity existed. So um, really, really incredible. But you go down into what we call the lagoon and it's, <laughs> it's an incredible, it's an incredible space. I call it the underground cathedral of Biddeford because I mean, they, they moved massive chunks of granite um, to build this underground, this underground lagoon that powered the mills. And it's, it's a phenomenal site. It really is really quite cool. So if anyone is interested uh, in, in getting a tour of the mills, uh, I believe you can contact the Heart of Biddeford and they can help schedule tours or visit the Biddeford Mills Museum website. Yeah, and we'll make sure Michael put links to be able to find that when we post this interview. No, that's really neat. Actually, now you mentioned tourism. That is one thing that we have talked about a bit on this show previously, the whole idea of cultural tourism. Obviously, I had a ton of momentum before crazy COVID world started. <laughs> um, but, and I'm curious, because I know Biddeford is part of that, as is Manchester, Lewiston, Lowell, of the entire idea of putting together a really robust Franco route yep. to be able to link all these towns um, and kind of put together um, organized tourist attractions, things that are important culturally uh, for perhaps visitors to come down from Quebec. And I'm just curious, you know, how familiar you are with that? What do you think the role of Biddeford is in that? What do you think the future of that is in that, especially now that we are in the crazy COVID world? times yeah i mean i think it, i think it's really important i mean as you as you know i think um uh, a lot of our communities are losing you know are, are aging and so we're, we're sure. losing the the memory of some of these significant uh you know the storytelling the the you know identity of you know what makes our communities you know franco um sure. and i i think it, i think it's really important that we start to uh, gather first of all gather the stories but also uh, find ways to pass on the information to younger generations, and uh, you know, Biddeford had you know the Locker Mess Festival for for many many years now, um, and that and that sort of has uh, you know needed a, a new some new energy as well. You know, I remember you know Locker Mess in the early days, you'd have like the Franco music, you had you know sure. folks from Quebec come down, and you know we we we've, we've kind of lost that sense of you know that festival is is to celebrate Franco American heritage and not just to eat, you know, French fries and, <laughs> and, and, and fried dough and ride on rides and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, you know, it's a, I think it's a collective challenge that we have as, as uh, you know, communities that have, have been historically uh, shaped by Franco-American culture to, you know, to really gather uh, the stories, capture the stories and, and, and pass on the cultural heritage to the next generation. Sure. And how do you suggest, because that's something, obviously, that's a major reason why this podcast exists. Yeah. Uh, but how do we do that? What is your vision for what do we do going forward? Because obviously, that's, that's our goal for all of us. Yeah, yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think, I, think, I think it's, you know, I think it's community driven in many ways. But it's also, I think one thing that we, we probably have not done a great job of is we work in silos. So, you know, for example, the Biddeford Mills Museum is as much about the mills, but it's also as much about Franco-American culture, because obviously the mills... Sure were highly significant to our Franco story here in Biddeford. But we know that's the case for many communities. Lewiston, you know, Lewiston-Auburn, right. highly shaped by 
uh, Franco-American culture. And, you know, uh, you know, there's some overlap, but, you know, I don't think we do necessarily a, a great job of bringing it all together. There, in, the, in, in recent years, there's, there was a Franco group that's been started, uh, and the name of it is Slipping My Mind here in Maine, uh, that I feel like has done a, a better job of starting to revive these conversations. And uh, is it French Connection? Or I, I, can't, I can't quite recall, but um, they'll, they'll be really upset that I don't <laughs> It's all right. Um, we can po- we can post it again in our notes. Yes, yeah. I'll send you I'll send you the link. But anyway, you know they I think they were starting to before COVID. Sure. Um, we're really starting to bring together these conversations by going to different communities and uh, starting to build like a membership. And I think that's important too. Uh, you know, a sense of society that we are together. And uh, you know, it'd probably be great to branch out into New Hampshire as well and uh, you know build start to build that that membership and that partnership uh, beyond. The state of Maine. I mean, that last part, obviously, I think something just from my perspective is super, super important because I don't think we, there has been historically enough cooperation between different groups in different states and even different cities within the same state. And <laughs> yes. I don't, I just don't think we have the luxury to not cooperate anymore. To me, it blew my mind when I went down and checked out, for instance, the Museum of Work and Culture down in Woonsocket. So that was the story of us. That, that's mm. a Franco-American history museum that until I did this project, I had no idea about. And so I think we just need to do a better job, all of us working together, taking advantage of some of these resources that we have. No, I think that's great. I agree. I agree. Now, one thing I did want to ask, because I talked about it with the mayor of Biddeford, Alan Casaman, we had him on the show. And I think it's an interesting question. I think about it a lot and I don't know the answer. So I'm curious, maybe you can help me out here. To me, there doesn't appear to be what I'm going to call a quote, French vote. Uh, and I always use the example, my best friend is Greek, um, and I, so I've gone to a lot of Greek festivals. There's a huge one in Manchester every year. I, I've been manning a grill a couple times, a volunteer, like I said, I'm a good friend to him and his family. At this event, every politician in the entire world, I don't care if you're uh, wanted to run for school board or you are a United States senator, you show up to the Glendy because you want to make sure that you try to get that, quote, Greek vote. Even though there's way more of us here, Franco-Americans, than there are Greeks in Manchester, there doesn't seem to be a quote, French vote. And I'm wondering if you agree, if you see the same thing in Maine, and if you do, why? Why is yeah. this the case? Uh, it's a really good question. You know, I, I, I look back and think about the Lucker Mess Parade um, and, the, and the festival again, you know, if you, if, if you were to turn back the clock, even just five or six years ago, you would see every politician, sure. uh, everyone that want, was seeking, seeking a vote in the Lucker Mess Parade or at the festival afterwards. Right. Um, and, and again, I think the organization around the festival has has been challenged by a number of things you know financially and a lack of interest i think from from the community and so i think as time has gone on i think that french vote as you're as you're describing i think has been dissolved a little bit and i do but i don't think it's necessarily gone i do think obviously you know there are a lot of (laughs) there still remain a lot of francos in in our communities and a lot of people who have have you know, a strong identity with their Franco culture. And I just think it needs a little bit of a re- re- revival. But I think, you know, something like the Frank, the, the Luck and Festival here in, here in Biddeford, I think is a real, is a real, there's a real opportunity for that to be the forum for outreach between elected officials and Franco-Americans. No, I think that's awesome. I mean, again, just another another event we got to do. Probably do a better job capitalizing. And I wish, but we could probably help more than we do here in New Hampshire, to be honest with you. Yeah, something yeah. like and, that. And if we, I mean, if we could regenerate it into something that that it once was, I mean, I think it's it would be a good model for for events to happen elsewhere. And, and maybe there, maybe it's the same the same name, but these you know smaller spinoffs or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it'll be different. Uh, 
but you could still have the same energy, you know, yes, kind yes. of thing. So uh, I didn't want to talk. I mean, something that's comes up a lot, um, with, especially with this other group that I'm, I'm on the board of, the Association for the Advancement of French Language and French Culture in the United States, is the whole idea of French education in public schools, especially, because mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer, just across the entire country, um, fewer and fewer places, public schools offering um, French as an option in the schools. And I was just curious, what is the situation in Maine? Because you think Maine, you think that's a French state. Yeah. So what does it look like in Maine? Um, do you see the same type of trend, unfortunately, happening where you guys are? Yeah, it's funny you bring this up because I have a sort of a personal story around this. I, you know, I originally signed up to take French classes in, in school. You know, first, you, the first time you get introduced to foreign language in main schools is in middle school. So sixth sure. grade, I signed up for French and, you know, I quickly became very discouraged because my dad would, you know, help me with homework and then I'd bring it to school and then I would get, everything was being marked incorrectly. And I was like, this cannot be. My dad speaks French. This, <laughs> right. is, this is insane. Of course, I quickly found out that my dad speaks Quebecois and there's, very, you know, lots of variations. Sure. He also has, I'm sure, adopted a great deal of slang over, over <laughs> the course. years. And, and so, you know, what's being taught in main schools is Parisian French. And so there's, there's some distinctions. So, you know, what I find interesting is that we have um, decided to teach, you know, students here in Maine uh, Parisian French when in fact, you know, most, most young, most students here in Maine would, uh, would benefit from being able to speak Quebecois. Absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> um, right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very, it's very interesting in that regard. Um, and, and I know that there obviously remains uh, significant challenges with foreign languages and, and trying to keep them intact, um, especially as Spanish becomes a more prominently used language across the country. And, and, uh, you know, obviously not to a tremendous extent yet in New England, but certainly uh, nationwide. Um, it's, it's, I think there's been more value placed on, on speaking Spanish. Uh, but I know that the Quebec consulate has been doing some work and providing, I think, grants to schools. And I think they've selected a couple in Massachusetts that have uh, trying to revive the French language in their communities. And I can't quite recall, and I'm sure you may have had the folks from the, the Quebec consulate on before, but. Uh, yeah, we talked to them at Putsin Fest. Actually, the last time, last time we were able to have a Putsin Fest, they actually we had a we had a, a booth, and they had the booth right next to us. It was very very cool. So I'd like to get, I guess, and, uh, and, I, and I think they're a great resource too because they become absolutely. more and more active. I mean, from my perspective, they seem to be more active in outreach and and being present in, in communities, and they've done a great job uh, in the last couple of years of being more, you know, more out there here in Maine, which I've appreciated. They've been uh, co-sponsoring events and. Uh, they have a presence in Augusta on a, on a regular basis and not just for, we have Franco-American Day at the Statehouse uh, here in Maine uh, every, every other year. And uh, we have a Franco-American Hall of Fame as well, nice. where we induct, you know, Francos into uh, the Hall. Of, yeah. uh, and, and the Quebec Council has been very, very helpful. And, but they've been showing up, you know, in the, my first couple of years in the legislature, they would show up just for that one day. Uh, but now they seem to be showing up more frequently for other events as well, which is great and hosting their own events. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, obviously, again, huge resource that we could hopefully use to coordinate our efforts yes, throughout yes. New England. I think it would be very, very cool. So now let's get to your story a little bit then, your career. How did you end up getting involved in politics? <laughs> um, well, I, w- I went to the Catholic University of America in D.C. So that, so that certainly helped for uh, my interest in politics being, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the capital. But really my, my interest in coming back home after I graduated in 2014 and running for office, I uh, my last semester at Catholic, I was coming home nearly every weekend to knock doors. Um, <laughs> I had a primary opponent. So 
You know, I graduated, gotcha. I graduated in May of 2014 and had a primary election in June. So oh, wow. I came home and I had a month, you know, left of the election. So I had a lot of work to do. You know, I knew that I had a lot, a, a lot of work to do before I actually uh, had moved back home. So I was, you know, knocking doors and uh, doing all that stuff in the winter and had my best semester at Catholic because I think I had so much time on trains and <laughs> airplanes um, to, do, to actually do my work. Um, and I didn't procrastinate so much, but anyway, uh, you know, my real interest in coming home and representing my, you know, representing my community here in Biddeford, uh, was the fact that Maine is the oldest state in the country. Uh, I, you know, a lot of my peers were, uh, had already moved away or had no intention of moving back sure. um, or they were going to school at UMaine or in the UMaine system. And they wanted, you know, as soon as they graduated, they were ready. They wanted to get, they wanted to go somewhere else. And. Uh, that was discouraging to me. I felt like, you know, Maine has so much opportunity. Um, we have such a, uh, you know, we have such clo close-knit communities, you know, recreational opportunities. You know, we have a beautiful state. And absolutely, I wanted, I wanted to be part of the conversation that was in, happening in Augusta about how we could um, attract young people back to Maine, to Maine for the first time, to get them to stay. And I felt like, you know, looking at the representation uh, we had in Augusta, I didn't feel like, um, young people were necessarily at the table. Um, I, I, my state rep who was termed out uh, in 20, 2014 was in her 80s. And so overnight, oh, yeah. you know, when I got elected, the district went from an 80-year-old to a 22-year-old. <laughs> so, you know, quite a drastic change. In I would say, <laughs> yeah, I would think so. No, that's awesome. Uh, another Franco, though, a Bodwen, so. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> no, we expect nothing less from Biddeford, but yeah. No, that's awesome. Now, you became... I guess maybe you ended up on a lot of people's radars, I should say, um, with your efforts uh, to ban conversion therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us, first of all, why was that so important to you? And talk a little bit about the battle to actually, because it did, you were successful to actually get that done. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a tough, it was a tough battle because I put the bill in, uh, well, at first I should say, for those who, who are unaware, uh, so-called conversion therapy is the practice of getting someone, someone who is a trusted individual, usually um, someone with a with a you know position of authority, um, in in many cases, someone who may even have attained obtained a, a license from the state sure. to uh, practice you know psychology or uh, something of the, of that nature, and it, it's this uh, discredited practice you know widely discredited practice that is ultimately harmful that is telling uh, young people that who they are is wrong and that they need to change primarily in the context of having, you know, uh, a young person who identifies as uh, LGBTQ. And, you know, I was, I felt very passionately about this issue because I had an experience where I, I did not, I did not go through conversion therapy, but I was suggested literature uh, by a trusted individual, someone who I really uh, trusted a great deal that, that was written by a book written by um, someone who, who had gone through conversion therapy and, and suggested that it worked. And, you know, just that experience of having someone that I trusted tell me to pick up this literature and to see beyond my gayness really had a, a huge impact on me uh, psych psychologically and emotionally. Um, it, it, it led to uh, some really uh, dark times for me personally. And sure. I had just a brush with this concept of conversion therapy, very surface level. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be a 16 or 17 year old who's come out to your parents, you know, which is a very difficult thing to do for many young people. And to be told that, you know, we're going to get you help. We're going to bring you to someone who's going to change who you are. Yeah. Um, so we, we got the bill submitted in my sec second term. 
ultimately got it through a Republicanly control, Republican controlled Senate. It was vetoed by our governor at the time, uh, Paul LePage, who became the, was the first governor in the country to veto such a bill. New Hampshire, uh, I think just a few months before, Republican Governor Sununu signed the exact same bill into law. So it's a kind of contrast yep. um, to see between the two. Fortunately, we came back with the bill this, this past few years and uh, uh, Governor Mills signed the bill into law. And so here in Maine, that practice is, as it is in New Hampshire, prohibited and uh, com- completely unacceptable. Yeah, no, I was there for that. I should, I've should done a couple of stints in the New Hampshire House and I'll put it out there now. Uh, I've seen tons. I've seen lots and lots of floor speeches from my time in the legislature and uh, the speech you gave. Uh, specifically on this bill, um, something we've got a link to. It's available through your website. It, it is absolutely awesome. Super yeah. powerful. Just an amazing, yeah. amazing talk. You can obviously, anybody who's going to spend the uh, 20, 15 minutes or whatever it is to watch that is going to understand how you got to where you are because it's an awesome. It's really, really terrific. And maybe, I guess maybe it says something about me, but I was surprised because obviously a lot of us in the Franco world are talking about, you know, when it was pretty clear you were going to be the next you know, speaker of the house here and the conversation at least me and my circles always had about i cannot believe that there's a 28 year old who's about to be speaker <laughs> in maine what surprised me i guess and maybe it shouldn't have but what surprised me was when i look at a lot of the national coverage it seems to be more could you believe it's going to be a gay person who's about <laughs> to be speaker in maine so i'm just curious how you are viewing because obviously you're getting known all over the place now how the coverage of your elections being covered now well, I, I keep saying to myself, I can't believe no one's covering the fact that I'm the first speaker from Biddeford. But, <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> there's never been a speaker from Biddeford, Maine. I'm very proud that for the first time in our state's 200-year history, uh, I've brought the speakership to my hometown of Biddeford. I think that's something I'm, I, I take a great deal of pride in. I'm obviously very proud of the fact that uh, for the first time in Maine, we have an openly gay speaker. Uh, you know, I, I know that that has significant meaning to young people, especially to see that, you know, they have leaders. I, I grew up without knowing any LGBTQ leaders. You know, sure. I didn't know who Harvey Milk was until I was 20 years old oh, wow. working on a marriage equality campaign. And we, we, for our, for a volunteer night, we, we played the movie Milk and I watched it for the first time <laughs> and found out who Harvey Milk was, who was sure. you know, a pioneer of LGBTQ rights someone that I should have known about, but I didn't. And, you know, it's, it's odd to grow up in a world where, you know, so, something that is so obviously significant about who you are and you don't have people that you don't even know your own history, right? I, I right. did not know who fought for my rights before I was on the, on the front lines fighting, fighting for marriage equality. So, um, you know, I'm very proud of that. But I, I, I think it is significant that, um, you know, I'll be, I will be the youngest uh, speaker in the country uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a sign of the times. Young people are more engaged than ever before in the political process. They are they are dissatisfied what's happening in their own communities, sure. in their states, in this nation, in this world. Um, there's too much on the line, and you know, I, not, not not that I expected that I would be uh, the the youngest speaker in the in the nation, but I'm not surprised that there is one because you know someone who's under the age of 30 because now is the time. For young people to engage the process because it's our futures at stake and there's not there's not a lot of time to solve the climate crisis to solve the growing amount of student loan debt that exists in this nation really? we need to be part of the conversation and to assert um, that our futures are on the line ultimately no no that's absolutely 100 percent true and obviously well, actually 
feel free to punt this question, but it just occurs, <laughs> it occurs to me now that uh, one of the things that you see in, in what you've put out there when you talk about yourself is the fact that you are a proud Catholic, which is something obviously pretty consistent with the, the Franco heritage. Um, how do you resolve that with the fact that you're also gay? Because that's something that, again, has come up time and time again. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think fundamentally, uh, I have always believed, regardless of the issue, and this is how I pr- approach politics as well, uh, if, if I'm not at the table, things are never going to change. And so Love that. If, if, every, if every person who supported LGBTQ rights or who themselves was LGBTQ left the pews and left the Catholic church, it would be a sounding board for the same ideas and the same uh, beliefs. And that's not how we create change in America. It's not how we change, create change in our, in our spiritual lives as well. So I, I see it as you know, fundamentally important that I remain, you know, true to who I am. I Catholicism is is an identity for me. I mean, sure. it's who who I am, what, how 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 I was raised, and I belong in the church just just as much as anyone else. And so I see I see that as very important to to me that I that I don't give up on the church. Um, I, I I don't I don't feel like that would be the right thing to do. That's awesome. I love that answer. Okay, so <laughs> now what's the what's the goal now? So you're now your speaker. We got we're living in a pretty crazy time. What is on your agenda for boxes? You got to make sure you check in your first term here as Speaker of the House. Yeah, it's going to be a really challenging session. Obviously, we're uh, not only dealing with how we logistically do the business of the legislature on, during a pandemic, right? Um, but we're also dealing with a you know a financial situation for the state that is that is pretty uh, bleak. You know, we have a budget deficit that we need to solve, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be challenging. But with that being said. I remain optimistic about the things that we can do as, as a legislature in terms of making sure that the, the folks that have been most impacted by this pandemic are not forgotten and not left behind and that they receive their due, uh, especially our, our healthcare workers who have been on the front lines, right. uh, you know, those who have been deemed essential workers, you know, those who've been bagging our groceries and helping us, you know, find the items that we need in the grocery Absolutely. While, while being in the presence of, you know, hundreds of different people every day, you know, we, we need to make sure we recognize and, and give them their due. Our educators, our teachers who have been, you know, teaching students uh, over Zoom and in person, even sometimes at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our young people who um, are having to learn in new ways, especially those who, um, you know, face, uh, you know, learning challenges, whether they be behind in reading or math, or they have uh, a learning disability, you know, I really, I really find it, you know, very important that we find, we make sure that they're getting the resources that they need. I don't want them falling behind. Um, and, you know, those are the students that are, are susceptible to falling through the cracks. And so we have a lot of work to do, but I think, you know, my colleagues on both sides of the aisle are up for the challenge. And I think now more than ever, recognize the need to uh, uh, overcome the partisanship, uh, the gridlock, because, you know, in a crisis like this, in a, under these circumstances, uh, the only thing our, our, our neighbors care about is making sure that we do our jobs and we d- do right by, by the people of the state of Maine. And that's my intention. And that's how I'm going to lead. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I do not envy kind of the challenge <laughs> that you have. I can't, I'm just thinking, trying to come up with a budget projection right now. I even how, how do we calculate the impact of, because obviously commerce between your state, my state and Quebec is huge and yeah. that's been hugely impacted. How do we get that back rolling again? There's a lot, a lot of challenges you got coming yeah. up. Yeah, I was, I, sure. was actually, I was actually up in Calais a few, few weeks ago 
uh, which is a border town. Right. And it was interesting to hear, you know, it was actually a couple of days after Trudeau announced that they were not going to extend, they were going to extend the border closure. And I was just thinking, you know, there are so many families there yeah. that, that, where they have, you know, they have fam- family on b- both sides of the border and they can't cross to see their, their mother perhaps, or their, or their, or their uncle um, or yeah. their aunts. And uh, of course, working, they can, they can cross the border for the purposes of work. But I mean, the challenges that are presented to communities in Maine where, you know, that relationship of the border is, is pretty significant. And under any other circumstance, you know, crossing the border would be like going from one town in Maine to the other. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, that relationship is so close. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very bizarre time. Very bizarre time. Yeah. I just, it's funny. You reminded me because we did a, in way back, seems like a you know, lifetime ago, back in March, we did a special kind of when COVID started impacting everyone. And we, we, were, we were speaking with somebody from Fort Kent, in fact, who was talking about how she, she was on one side of the board. She was in, obviously, Fort Kent. She had her parents and her kids were on the Canadian side. Mm. And for the entire history of that area, it had never been an issue because they, whether it was two countries, same country, whatever, it was always treated as one like giant you know, community across yep. this board, like you mentioned, just going back and forth, like it was nothing. And all of a sudden now they can't see each other. And it yep. was, I mean, I can't even imagine being in that situation. It's, it is crazy. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the, when we get to that next deadline concerning the border, what the decision will be, obviously. Uh, things have not improved at all here in the United States since right. Trudeau extended the, the closure. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hoping, I'm, I mean, I was supposed to do my six months in Quebec City 2020 something i'm rooting for pretty hard for this vaccine so i can get up there in 2021 yes, but yes. Uh, one thing i do this has been awesome by the way uh but i gotta make sure to ask uh before we go because i think it's super interesting for me um on your twitter page first of all i always find it interesting because you know when you put yourself out there on twitter you got like two lines to kind of say who you are what you're about uh, and so i always find it interesting what people include in those couple of lines like what if you only could say three or four things about yourself total what would you want the world to know about yourself um in your case you list four of them and one of them is proud franco-american which i think is absolutely awesome why is it why is it so important to you why is it crucial to you that if people know nothing else about ryan fecto they know you're a proud franco-american uh, I, I just think it's it's so fundamental of of how, who who I am and how how I've lived. You know, I I I grew up with a meme and a pepe, and uh, you know, I I had you know a dad who uh, worked in the mills, and along with many many other Francos. You know, um, it is so fundamentally part of my identity and who I am, uh, and I'm proud of of that of that culture and the community that we have here in Biddeford. Because I also know that it was never it was never something that was easy. Um, sure. A lot of Francos here in Biddeford and and elsewhere, um, you know, we were we were target we were a community that was targeted for being for, for being Catholic, right? right. For Absolutely. speaking French, those things that uh, I think you know maybe my meme and Pepe were ashamed of um, because they were trying to uh, assimilate and and try to uh, fit in. Sure. There are things that I, I want to make sure people know that I'm proud of. You know, I don't I don't want to be I, I have I have no shame in the fact that I grew up with a meme and pepe, and that I that you know my dad speaks French and my meme speaks French. Um, I'm proud I'm proud of that, and I, w- I want to make sure that it's, that people know that. And so um, it's an interesting thing because obviously I'm somewhat removed from from some of the 
you know, real cultural identities, speaking French, for example. Uh, but in many ways, I feel like I, I'm as close to them as ever, especially as I, as I grow older and have a, a greater appreciation for them. That's awesome. This is, a, I got to tell you. If, if, only I, if only I had the appreciation when I was younger, because then maybe, of I course. Would, maybe I would have learned French. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. Maybe I wouldn't need to go to Quebec City for six months to be able to pick up the language. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm going to hopefully before I'm 40 years old, I want to be able to have a conversation, a fluid conversation with my parents in their first language. That is my goal. But anyway, I got to tell you, this has been an absolute, absolute honor for me. Uh, I know a major, major motivation for this podcast right from the very beginning. Um, is when I had been told time and time again that, you know, French Canadian heritage is dead, or if it's not dead, it's at least dying. And my reaction to that has always been that it's not dead. It's different. Um, yep. It's not dying. It's changing. And uh, I actually really think this is a super interesting time to super exciting time to be a Franco American, uh, because I do think the steps we are taking now um, has a pretty big impact on what, the Franco-American identity scene is going to look like for my nephew and the next generation going forward. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess this has been me being on my soapbox. Long-winded way of saying, I'm not sure there's a better example of why Franco-Americans should be excited for the future than Ryan Fecto, Speaker of the House of the State of Maine. Ryan, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Anything Mike and I could do here at the French-Canadian Legacy to help you out ever going forward, please let us know. And now if somebody wants to get in touch with you or find out more information, maybe, I don't know, volunteer for donate to a campaign where can we send them uh twitter is the best place to find me i think <laughs> so, so, sometimes for better or for worse but uh at, at, <laughs> at ryan fecto on on twitter also on instagram and uh, uh ryanfecto.com awesome thank you very much ryan really appreciate it sir thank you jesse appreciate being on the show now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share but the spirit our culture will survive Each of us must choose How much to keep alive Each of us must choose How much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.